Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So for the last few episodes, we focused on the impact of the novel coronavirus for vulnerable populations, and we'll get back to that topic in our next show. But for this podcast, we're going to switch tracks a bit. In this time of massive disruption and uncertainty, one thing that is highlighted is the importance of thoughtful leadership. On today's show, you'll hear excerpts from a conversation I had with Dr. Freeman Herbowski, one of America's top leaders in higher education. Dr. Hrabowski is the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and it's a school that's a field leader in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and one that's renowned for its success in recruiting and, more importantly, graduating students from diverse backgrounds. When you meet Dr. Hrabowski, you see someone with a remarkable positive energy and curiosity and a true sense of humility, despite the honors in his biography like the fact that he was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by time in 2012, or that he has a TED Talk with over 1 million views, or that he was a civil rights activist and member of the Children's Crusade in his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Herbowski and I spoke in mid-February, before the effects of COVID-19 started to take hold across the U.S., but his insights on building leaders for tomorrow remain evergreen. Dr. Herbowski is a mathematician by training, and I started the conversation by asking him how he ended up in higher education administration. You know, believe it or not, when I was a teenager, when I was uh, about 13, I was in a special math program at Tuskegee University, and a dean came in the room and put a problem on the board. And we were supposed to be these high achievers from around the country and nobody could solve it. And everybody was really frustrated. And he said, when you can solve it, come and see me. And they were all really upset. I was fascinated that this guy would believe if we kept working at it, we could do it. And as a result, I just pushed it. They were older than I was, but I kept saying almost with the the innocence of a child, well, he believes in us. Mm -hmm. They were more cynical. They were like 16. Mm -hmm. They were just saying, no, he's not a good teacher. Right, because he's supposed to tell us how to do it. And we worked for two days on that problem. Well, he was a dean and a mathematician. And I said, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the person who who inspires kids to believe they can do what seems impossible. And that was the beginning of my thinking about my career. So the seed of leadership was planted for Dr. Herbowski early on. As president of UMBC for the last 27 years, he's helped transform the former commuter school into one of the best STEM schools in the country. You know, we we are changing the thinking about public institutions. Americans tend to think that the richer and the more private and the older the institution necessarily, the better it is academically. And those are wonderful institutions. But when we think about public universities, we tend to think about sports. Well, our vision at UMBC is that when people think UMBC, they think about chess and model UN and students who are doing research in biochemistry, for example, or students who are studying the classics. In a lot of ways, Dr. Herbowski is trying to rebrand what it means to be cool, where smarts is as cool as sports. So the idea of quality in academics is the theme of UMBC. It's a nerdy place. We are proudly a nerdy place, a place that talks about grit 
And that's another one of the concepts that I believe we are pushing around the country that it's not about who is the smart kid. What does smart mean? It's about who works hard. And the Chesapeake Bay Retriever is our mascot. And he, his name is True Grit. And we say UMBC is the house of grit. And we want families to tell their kids, you can do this. It's not that you were born to be great in math. It's that you work hard at it, that you're intellectually curious, that you have passion for learning. What UMBC is doing is saying we must be empowered to push our society, not just students, to be passionate about learning, you see, across the disciplines and to understand that Education is at the key, at the core of our future as a country, pre-K through 20, the core. And, and we, we believe that very strongly with passion. We want the same passion for biochemistry or for philosophy as we have in this country for the Super Bowl. What a revolutionary idea. <laughs> One of the things UMBC is best known for is becoming the first 16-seed team to beat a one-seed, in that case, Virginia, in 2018 in the NCAA basketball tournament. And while Dr. Herbowski reveled in that moment along with the rest of the campus, he was just as proud about the surprising shout-out that one of his players gave after the game. Our basketball players are strong students, when we beat that game with the wonderful UVA and they asked the two players, what are they going to do? One kid said, I've got to go back to my room and study for a test, right? And the other kid said, with great sincerity, we stand on the shoulders of our chess team. Mm. Where else would you have a basketball player admiring the chess player? You know, we need that in our country. Now, UMBC has a super diverse campus. Over 60% of students at UMBC have an international background with at least one parent who's born in a different country. Dr. Herbowski sees their engagement in higher education as part of the American entrepreneurial dream. The point of UMBC is that you don't have to be rich to be the best student, that you can be intellectually curious and achieve at the highest levels and go on to the most prestigious places in the country and excel. And even go on the, the, the uh, faculties of places. I mean, I, I love telling people, we've got graduates down to faculties of Harvard and Stanford and Duke and, and Hopkins and places. And so we respect all of those wonderful places, but we're saying the pie is bigger than those private, very wealthy institutions that a part of American entrepreneurship involves people who are first-generation college or whose parents are teachers who learn to read and think critically, who get excited about math and go on and become leaders in our society. Dr. Herbowski and two colleagues, Philip Roos and Peter Henderson, published a book last year entitled The Empowered University. To Dr. Herbowski, an empowered university goes beyond the efforts of a single leader. Really, he's the first to say that he's just one person in a team focused on broader empowerment. So I begin with the first sentence in the book, which says, it's not about me, it's about us. We tend to think as a society about the one leader at every level. We do. And our point, my colleagues and I want to make this point, that true leadership is about broad consensus building and a vision that reflects the thinking of disparate perspectives uh, that somehow We've listened to people argue and looked for that common path 
that we can all agree to as the best way for our students and for colleagues in the research. And I wanted to say that to people who want to be leaders, mm-hmm. because people always say, what did you do? What did you do? I said, I got the right people around me. It's all of us. And we together worked on things and people who came before us. Sometimes leaders don't realize you need to talk about building on the foundation of somebody who came before you. And an empowered university requires harnessing the power of self-reflection. And so the empowered university and UMBC, all of that's about being empowered to look in the mirror and to be honest with self. And to appreciate one's strengths, yes, we are attracting high-achieving students who are excelling. And at the same time, at the same time, we are looking in the mirror to say, how can we be better? Our theme is success is never final. There's so much more to do. And while we're helping many students to succeed, for example, in STEM, there are others who are good students who are not doing as well. And we are honest about that. We can do a better job. So the group reached out to students to talk openly about what the university was doing well and what could be better. We have found that having robust conversations among faculty, between faculty and students and staff, can get people to open their minds. And we we do use the term, the language, uh, we want to learn how to agree to disagree agreeably or with civility, right? And I often say to people, colleagues and students, those the gods wish to destroy, they first make angry. If I make you angry, you can't do your best thinking. You're, you're reacting from emotions. And so whether talking about changing one's point of view or changing one's approach, I think you, you said something very important, humility for all of us, empowered to be humble. As we get become more educated, more successful, usually the humility goes out the window too often. And yet, what I've come to appreciate, and my colleagues would agree, is we need to be more humble now than ever. Sometimes the feedback was that they had to remove impediments. We had to figure out how to get around the obstacles, which made us more entrepreneurial. So it was a humbling experience. <laughs> what, what I tell presidents, what you don't know about your campus could make another university. <laughs> There's so much we think we know that we, so humility is important. So thinking about how to empower students was to really think about what would work best for them. But I would say the vision for this campus really is the the result of the thinking of a number of people about how we help students succeed. And I think the notion of course redesign, a faculty saying, we need to rethink how we're teaching these courses and using analytics I mean, this combination of statistics and computational work to evaluate how students are doing and to be able to disaggregate the data over numbers of years and to talk about people of color and to talk about women and first-generation college and to understand who is succeeding and who is not and in what classes and with what professors. The next step was to take that information and figure out how to use it, not just as an administration effort, but as a larger effort that involved the faculty as well. All of that led to our colleagues saying, we need to rethink the teaching and learning process. We need to get away from simply lecturing. We need to have more collaboration among students. We need to build community. We need to look at how we use technology for real-time feedback. And we need to show them how you connect with each other to build synergy in a group. And so we've spent a lot of time with funding and time with faculty and others focusing on building a new teaching and learning 
environment, not just in chemistry, but in the humanities, digital humanities, imaging and digital arts, and geographic information systems in so many areas. So it's the, the use of technology across disciplines and taking more time, giving faculty more time to talk with each other about how to be even more effective in helping more students succeed. Dr. Hrabowski has been inspired by the take-up of faculty to this challenging, self-reflective effort. It's amazing how professors here have said, there's more we can do. We should expect more from ourselves. If I go to the board and I put a problem from differential equations on the board and then I give it to a class and they all can't do it on the test, have I taught it? Mm. Typically, we say if you put it on the board, we taught it. No, no. Here at NBC, we're going to say if most people didn't grasp the concept, then there's something wrong with the teaching and learning process. And we need to rethink that in America. And so we are uh, a model that many universities, public and private, are using to rethink how they do things. So the point of the empowerment is not to point fingers at people, but it's to have us all embracing this challenge, being empowered to say, we take ownership of this challenge and we can be better. That's the idea. And he sees the larger project of the university in pushing students to think critically. So when I'm saying to students, get beyond your comfort zone, I'm saying it to ourselves. Because we have different religions, different cultural backgrounds, and it's so easy to assume that our perspective is the right perspective. And, and the challenge we face, if we are to help all of our students who come from all kinds of backgrounds, is to prepare leaders who are willing to listen and to think carefully about the arguments to separate truth from opinion. And as a result of that process, to pull people from different perspectives into the conversation thoughtfully. That's a part of this challenge universities face right now. Dr. Herbowski sees that goal as one that should be taken on for higher education across the country. The country tends to weed out students in science from all kinds of institutions. But it's not just about minority students. Students who go to the most socially prestigious places with perfect scores, often leave science within the first year or two. And they think, oh, I wasn't good enough. Well, no, I would say it wasn't that they weren't good enough. It's that the culture tends to weed students out. We have not appreciated the fact that high quality should be about rigor of the work and high level of expectations of support for students. It's great to expect a great deal, but it's also great for the university to expect a lot of itself about what it should do if it admits a student in helping that student reach her dreams. That's the challenge we face in our country. And Dr. Hrabowski says it's about supporting those students and about opening the doors to students who have been shut out in the past. So the the, the key, and this is what I would want people to think about, is how do we help more people, whether they're going to be scientists or not, to become scientifically literate and to appreciate that we need to be investing much more in science because that goes to directly to global competition. And the more we invest in science and the more we appreciate we need all people in it and the more we appreciate the fact that our population is becoming close to 40% in in coming years of color, the more we understand we need that group involved too. It can't just be a small group of men on the side who are doing the science. It's got to be women, people of color, people from all kinds of backgrounds. Otherwise, 
how are we going to have elected officials believing the public really cares? And if the public doesn't care, you're not going to get the funding. Bringing students of color into the sciences is one of the signature achievements of UMBC. The university is best known for the Meyerhoff program, a scholarship used to boost the diversity in research-based PhD programs. And in the last 30 years, the Meyerhoff program has expanded from just a small cohort of 19 young Black men to hundreds of alumni that include women and minorities of color. It's been more successful than any of us could have imagined. And it was Robert Meyerhoff, who's a philanthropist uh, and who who said he, he honestly believed that if you gave Black kids the same support that upper-middle-class white kids got, those kids could do really well. We have become the leading producer of African-Americans who go on to complete MD-PhDs. We're number one. Harvard is number two. So we're very proud of that. And those young people are now on the faculties of best universities, most prestigious in the country. What we learned from Meyerhoff about getting students involved in labs in that freshman year, we now do with thousands of our students. And Meyerhoff's alumni has some pretty impressive success stories. The Surgeon General is a graduate of UMBC, and it's a, it's a great story because he comes from Mechanicsville, Maryland, small town. He had never seen a black doctor. Now he's the nation's doctor. The person who was just named the young investigator in neuroscience from the New York Neuroscience Society is Meyerhoff, black who's now an endowed professor at Duke. He invented the pacemaker for the brain to address mental disorders. And then the New York Times reported that the work with the NIH lab on a vaccine for the coronavirus is led by a woman, and she is a Meyerhoff graduate. Dr. Herbowski says that the Meyerhoff program is now being replicated at Penn State, at UNC Chapel Hill, and in Berkeley and San Diego, And the lessons learned from the program apply beyond STEM fields. Here's what I would say to you. Build community, the high expectations, not just of the students, but of ourselves. It takes researchers to produce researchers in any discipline. Just as if you're going to be a journalist, it helps to work around the journalist, right? That's true in every discipline. And the more closely connected people are, the more that young apprentice learns. And so what we learned from Meyerhoff about getting students involved in labs in that freshman year, we now do with thousands of our students on this campus, uh, in Hopkins Labs, in Maryland Medical Labs, and all the national agencies. And so they get those experiences. They publish as undergraduates in referee journals, and then they go on to grad school. And there was, we've had just remarkable success. Overall, even in a time of escalating political polarization, Dr. Herbowski remains optimistic about the future of higher education. I would say my colleagues here at UMBC have maintained our optimism, first because we believe in our students and in their power to overcome obstacles. When a scientist suggested that 1945 was a time of optimism, I said, I don't see it. For perhaps a small percentage of the population, it was. But for many people, you know, only 5% had a college degree of any race. As an African-American from educated family, I've been discriminated against, but I've always been privileged to have basic things. You know, let's recognize that. But for poor children of any race who have been through generations of poverty, 
This is no worse than it's always been for them. Somehow we have to remember that. When Katrina came, people saying how bad it was. Well, for some of those poor people, it was always that bad. So it, it gives us a chance to think about the this growing inequality, income inequality, as related to academic achievement gap, to health disparities, to all those things. And I think what we're saying as a university is that it's an opportunity to help students appreciate history, to look at ethical considerations, to build strong thinking skills, to put in perspective this challenge of truth versus opinion, to be able to look at different TV stations and and to dissect and find some challenges with any of them, and yet to look at for the truth, all right? And in the end, Dr. Herbowski says he remains optimistic for our country's future as well. We are not perfect, but we go to extremes and then we come back to the middle. This is what history teaches us. And it's important for our students who are seeing all of this for the first time to know we've had some of these things before. Things are different this time. They are unique elements of this condition. But I have confidence in, again, in the the meaning of the word hope and of brain power. And finally, of the heart. I honestly believe that even people who disagree with me on some things fundamentally have decent hearts. The question is, how do we get to that heart? Even as we teach them to think more critically. But we will do it. I have no doubt. We will do it as a country. So that's our show. Big, big thank you to Dr. Freeman Herbowski for taking the time to talk with me and to Dinah Winnick for helping set up the interview. You can find a link to Dr. Herbowski's TED Talk and his book on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. If you have some time, you might want to go back to check out the Critical Value archives and listen to some of our old episodes. In particular, our last few episodes looking at the impacts of the coronavirus on vulnerable populations are especially relevant. And while you're taking that time, maybe jump on iTunes and leave a rating for us. It helps others to find the show, and we really appreciate the feedback. Also, if you have any comments or questions, you can always email us at criticalvalue@urban.org. Thank you to producer Jacinth Jones and to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two kids that are now co-producers. I hope you enjoyed the podcast um, and, uh, and you like to um, listen to the um, podcast. And <laughs> 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 <laughs>